This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is the founder and CEO of Gearbox Entertainment. He is also the head of Pittsburgh Entertainment Media and Magic. His interests run the gambit from video game design and development to publishing and film. He has a deep passion for magic and variety acts that he presents in the Peacock Theater in Frisco, Texas. Coming up is my creative conversation with serial entrepreneur and entertainment magnate, Randy Pitchford. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Hey Pat, thanks for having me on. This is uh, looking forward to this. Well, it's my pleasure, and I, full disclosure, I just had the pleasure of seeing you and your wife at the Peacock Theater in Frisco, Texas, where you presented an amazing holiday show with a wide variety of acts, and it's always an eclectic, crazy night of fun. It definitely is, and it was made even better by you being there, Pat. Well, it was happenstance that I was down the road, but you guys opened your door and included me in a fabulous evening with a chef having dinner and the show itself. So I do want to start there, since we're talking about it, about the Peacock Theater being a private theater in your home and having this sort of lens that you look through where you present people who have been seen on America's Got Talent and from other countries. There was a street act from Melbourne, Australia. There were so many cool elements that come to it. So when you began to present entertainment in your own home, tell me about the inspiration for that. Have you been to Brookledge in Los Angeles? It was originally the home of a gentleman named Floyd Thayer, who built magic apparatus around the turn of the last century. And he was the greatest magic apparatus builder that the world had ever known. And he had this theater that he built on the property of his home that he would bring magicians to showcase his work. And it sort of became this secret underground venue where people in Hollywood can go and enjoy variety and magic without being hassled by paparazzi. And it's still going on to this day. When Thayer got old, he traded homes with the Larson family of magicians, who of course founded the Academy of Magical Arts and the Larson children, Bill, and built the Magic Castle. They built the Magic Castle inspired by their experiences at Brooklyn. But Brooklyn is really this theater in this home where weirdos and interesting people with great acts can come and, and show their stuff to, to folks that really appreciate live entertainment. That inspired me. And it's just a beautiful community. And everyone that, that gets to have an experience there is inspired. It's a small theater, right? It's intimate. It's 50 to 70 seats or something like that. I think at Brookledge, it bursts at the seams if you stuff 70 people in there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've seen pictures of Dick Van Dyke and others. Yeah. Orson Welles has performed on the stage yeah. at Brookledge. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and Floyd Thayer, as an illusion designer, I want to say that it was originally demoing those illusions 
it was mostly to put that on as opposed to the more eclectic and wild variety acts are now. It started as a tool for him to sell magic to Harry Houdini. In fact, you know, there's a picture of Bess Houdini on the porch in front of Brookledge with like six-year-old Milt Larson who built the Magic Castle. <laughs> Milt's doing a coin trick. He's doing the same trick you do for Bess Houdini, pal. Oh, that's amazing. So let's talk about the Larson family too, because I did see Erica Larson at your event. She's the one that now is the booker and proprietor of the Brookledge Theater and also the president of the Magic Castle. She's the president of Magic Castle Enterprises, yes. Right. So there's a great tie between that family and yours. And most people may not know the Larson family, but brothers Milt and Bill, they were the founders of the Magic Castle in Hollywood right there on Franklin. And it looms over the city just above the Kodak Theater, uh, just a beautiful piece of real estate. Did they? There was a home that they converted to the Magic Castle? Yeah, the, the building was originally known as the Lane Mansion. It was built in 1908, I believe. The Lane family owned most of Hollywood, and it was a farm. In fact, you know where the Chinese theater is, uh, you've got Orange Street that goes from Hollywood Boulevard to Franklin. And of course, that's where the Magic Castle is right there at the top of Orange Street. It was called Orange Street because that was the path that led between the orange grove, all the orange trees. And there was the path that, that went down between them. So the Lane family had this beautiful property and, and all this land around Hollywood before Hollywood was the Hollywood we know today. And they, they built this amazing Victorian Edwardian style living space. When the, the patriarch passed and the children scattered, it was left abandoned and empty for decades. And a Texas oil man purchased, a guy by the name of Tom Glover Sr. purchased uh, all that real estate. And then in 1961 or two, Milt Larson did a handshake deal with him. He'd been admiring that building his whole life. He worked at a gag writer at a TV uh, station that had offices overlooking that building. And he just fell in love with it and thought, that's that's the place where I can build the clubhouse my dad always wanted to build for magicians. And he did a handshake deal with Tom Glover, and that started it off. He infused his whimsy into the design of the castle. They continued to build. They kept adding a little wing and opening it up something, like almost like the Winchester Mystery House. It's totally like that. You can get lost in there very easily on a night at the Magic Castle or miss a part of it, not realize you can go to the basement or go you know, around a corner and see a different show. 100%. It feels like a magical place just being in it. It is magical to see when night falls and you look up at it lit. It's just an extraordinary view. And I know that you, among many of our peers, were inspired as a young magician and made a pilgrimage to the Magic Castle. So I'd love to hear how you first arrived there. Did you come from Texas to, to No, California? no. I grew up in California. I actually was on the Central Coast, an area near Pismo Beach. I moved down to Los Angeles to go to UCLA. And of course, like the dream is to to get into the Magic Castle. Now, of course, it's a it's a nightclub and it's adults only. So I had to wait till I was 21. But on my 21st birthday, I had it all set up. I already had sponsors, magicians I had met and known, including Billy McCollum was one of my sponsors to sponsor me. Because to, to become a member, a magician member, you have to be sponsored by two magicians that are in good standing. And you also have to audition. I had all that set up so that on my 21st birthday, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go for it. How long of a performance do you have to do in that audition? I did 10 minutes. Okay. And I did an act. Like I worked on it. Everybody else that was there that night, everybody else that was also auditioning, there was probably five of us. 
they all got rejected. Back then, the castle had standards. (laughs) 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 My name Pitchford happened to be last alphabetically, so I was last to be called down. I watched the four people before me leave dejected and despondent, and I'm like, oh, shit, this, this is it. Oh, they decide right then? They actually, yeah. oh my god! watch gosh. you perform, and then they make you, well, this is how it was back then. I don't know how it is now. They, they watched me do my act, and then they made us sit in a, basically an Irma's room waiting until they deliberated, and then they brought us down one at a time to let us know if we were in or out. And they told us right then if we are if we're in or out. It's like being in a beauty contest and having them give you a thumbs down to your face. Oh, my God. It was brutal. <laughs> it was brutal. I was so nervous. I've never been more nervous before or since. Uh, you're in, kid. And we'd like to book you for the close-up room. And I was like, what? It was quite a surprise. Well, that's an awesome 21st birthday. Now, the castle (laughs) has had other significance. So you later got married in the castle. And that blows my mind, too. So were you in the main theater? 1997. We had our dinner in the dining room. We got married on the main stage. And then we had a reception down in the inner circle and turned that into a ballroom for our first dance and did the whole the whole wedding party, every aspect of it, for a cost of less than three thousand dollars. Wow. wow! If you wanted to buy out the castle today, minimum is like fifty-five, sixty grand. But back then, like that, it was a very kind of intimate thing. It wasn't the bustling environment that it is today, and uh, and they didn't even know like that wasn't a thing people did. Like when we approached them to say, "Hey, can we get married here?" Like I. I guess like no one's ever done that. Let's, let's figure that out. And the reason why it cost 2000 because they didn't know they weren't going to charge us anything. So we'll tell you what, we'll get dinner and just charge us whatever the dinner costs. And that'll be the way we can give some money back to the place. And back then we were grateful because we didn't have any money. <laughs> and I were broke. <laughs> well, you know why we were broke, Pat? Because I was a magician. Not only were you not making money, you were spending a ton of money buying props and books. It's the worst job in the world if you want to make money, but it's the best job in the world if you want to create wonder and joy and happiness for people, which is pretty much how it defines my life. Well, I have to tell you, and you probably did the same thing at one time. I worked at a place called the Spaghetti Works in Omaha and went table to table for three hours on a Thursday night. And every table was a renewed sense of awe and people would get all excited and they would call you over. You know, there was nothing bad about strolling is the best. You you did strolling. I did so many restaurants. I, I will tell you my little Tom Sawyer scam, which was I didn't want a regular job. I had worked at some pizza places and things as a teenager. And so I was good at card tricks and good at coin tricks. And I had a handful of things. And I realized that if I went to tables, my show only had to be those five tricks I knew. And then I could That's go right. to a new, yeah, yeah, okay. nobody bought a ticket to come see an hour show. They would sit down, finish eating. I would come up, I'd do what I could. And then I'd move to another table. Yeah. So that allowed me to perfect the tricks that I did have. But I convinced the venue to give me an hourly wage, which was better than I could get anywhere else. At that time, maybe it was $20 an hour. Usually we say, well, if you let us come, we'll work for tips. But I did both. So so I got tips on top of it. So I would say most nights I left with about 150 bucks, right? And that was a big, big deal. I only worked that place when they were busy on Thursday nights. And then it occurred to me, oh, another restaurant. If I tell them I'm doing that, might take me on Friday. So I went to Gallagher's. And then once I had two, 
is when I began the Gallagher's may want me on Thursday and Friday and the Spaghetti Works was willing to pay a little bit more. And then I said to Gallagher's, you know, Spaghetti Works, like I played them each against each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hell yeah. Good job. And the Spaghetti Works said, no, we don't want you to do that. How about if you go to our Spaghetti Works in Ralston on Saturday and that'll help make up. So now I had three days a week. Like it was just a a circle of going from place to place. And I drove a 1956 Oldsmobile that was sort of black and gray that had magic license plates on it. So people, that was my billboard. If that was in front of the restaurant, they knew that's where I was doing close up. That's so great. I love that. You know, I'll tell you what, when I was strolled, I developed so fast as an entertainer because you're doing 20, 30 shows a night or more. The iteration is so fast. I think that strolling for me contributed more to my development as an entertainer than any other thing, with the possible of ex- exception is when I worked in a, at a, behind a magic counter selling magic. Have you ever done that? I've, no, I've never done that, but I've, I admire those guys. When I would go to Tannen's Magic Shop in New York, what my favorite thing about those guys is they generally know how everything works. And if something's crappy, instead of doing it for you, they'll go, let me show you something better. <laughs> if you point at a thing and say, what does that do? And they go, yeah, it's all right. I'll do it. But how about this? Or- they just don't know how to do that trick because they only know oh. the five tricks that they sell over and over again. <laughs> they size you up to see what you can handle, That's too. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You look like a self-working guy. You know, you'll need this coloring book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it is funny. They saved my life a few times in terms of the first one of my early ventures to Hollywood. I was invited to be on the Alan Thick show. It was a late night talk show. And I think it was one of my very earliest TV debuts. They had seen me at a Magical Entertainer of the Year contest that was take that took place at the Improv, and they invited me to come back from Omaha to be on the show. And I went to the rehearsal, and I ran through my act, and I was so excited I was going to be on TV that I was going to like celebrate with a nice big steak dinner or something. I don't remember if it was Dan Tana's. It was some Hollywood place. And when I came out from that to my rental car. It had been broken into and my act had been taken. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be on the show tonight. So I wrote, drove right down to the Hollywood Magic Shop right there on Sunset. Yeah, Pierre's place. I couldn't find everything that I was doing, but I could find things that I had performed. And I go, I'll take one of those change bags. I'll take that thing. I'll take that. And then when I showed back up to the studio, I said, hey, I'm going to be doing something different. They go, no, no, we want you to do it rehearsed. I go, this is all I got with me. I didn't want to tell them my act was stolen or that they would have canceled me. (laughs) Which I know, uh, hearing your story, I know that you, as a college student, Universal City Walk was building this this Wizards Club, right? That's right. It was magic themed. I was working as a tour guide at Universal Studios when they started construction of the Universal City Walk. A sign went up. In the, in the center, there was this span across the city walk, and a sign went up said, like, future home of wizards. And it, like, like, wizards, that might be something magic. So I went in there, braces on my teeth. We'd walk through the construction site every day because the employee parking lot was between where we'd go to do the tours and where the, where the construction for city walk was. And so I'd walk through there every day. So I walked in, and, you know, totally everything's open. There's just garbage everywhere they're just building the place and i asked if there was someone there that like had something to do with the management or whatever and this guy and he's like you can talk to me and it turned out i was talking to fred wood who was the owner of of wizards and ran the place and i just said hey is it i said is this going to be a magic 
club or magic play? like and he's like yeah i said i i need to work here i'm i'm a tour guide uh right now but he's like well show me something of course i have a deck of cards on me so i do a couple of tricks and he says uh do you have a tuxedo and i lied and said yes <laughs> and he said well tell you what we open in about eight weeks come back in six and we'll get you set up by then you had a tuxedo i guarantee of course i got my grandfather's tuxedo <laughs> yeah yeah i called everybody i'm like so my grandpa had a tuxedo that fit me and sent it to me and that was that's what i used and i i wore that tuxedo every night five nights a week here was my trick when i did all those restaurants i knew i needed something formal i needed formal wear I went up to the place you rent it at the mall for yeah. prom or something. Okay. It was called Sir Knight Formal Wear. Okay. I went into Sir Knight Formal Wear with very little money. What can I get? And he goes, uh, here's something from five years ago we're getting rid of. It had like a velvet gambler's vest where I go, okay. That's perfect. And I said, I got to work a bunch of nights in a row. Like, I don't know. And he said, all right. Like he opened up the, what I would call the archives. <laughs> You're in the tuxedo vault of lost lost souls. These were rented by probably 16 and 17 year olds for 20 years. Like, like I had to have them super dry cleaned. You know what I mean? Yeah, Even yeah, though they yeah. do that. But they were durable. They were designed to be rentals. <laughs> exactly. So I had three of those and I, I even got some special pockets sewn in them so I could carry all my stuff. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I very rarely wear formal wear now is I wore it so much at those restaurants. Really? I'm the opposite. I got so comfortable wearing a tux. I like it. When I go to the castle, I wear a tux just because like I can get away with it. You can't get away with wearing formal wear in too many places anymore. Well, it is so much fun to wear formal wear at the Magic Castle. But the other name you just dropped, which I'd just like to shine a light on, is Cardini. You said you didn't mention Cardini's name. He was your great uncle, and his real name was Richard Valentine Pitcher. Yep. Yeah. A British magician. From Wales. Describe to the audience, uh, because he is the classic look of what we think of. Probably the most imitated magician that ever lived, because he created that look of the top hat tuxedoed with white gloves. You know, that that look is was Cardini's. And it obviously was paired with unbelievable talent. Just, I'll never be as good as Cardini. I said that once when I first met Pendulette and he, and he wanted to, some magicians get a kick out of the fact that descendant of royalty there. And I said, look, I'll never be as good as Cardini. And he looked at me and smiled and said, no one will. Don't worry about it. And I was like, okay, thanks <laughs> right. for letting me off the hook. <laughs> He was such a good sleight of hand artist, and he worked for royalty, heads of state. And this was before there was television exposure or any of that kind of thing. 40 years doing the same act. Unbelievable. Impeccable detail to both his costume and his performance. And now he called himself the suave deceiver. The suave deceiver. I like that and one. And he was a very, very handsome man and uh, carried himself like a gentleman. And I've, I've been told that I, I resemble him very much. Sure, sure. I'm sure you're living on that compliment. I'm sure. So here we are all these years later. And what people may not know, because I don't think I said it in your introduction, is that the Magic Castle has gone through all of this development and it the land was owned by one family and the Magic Castle brand was created by the Larson family. And there's a parking lot that was being run by some other organization. This was a cluster and the Magic Club was over the last 10 or 15 years was somewhat in jeopardy of 
there being a last day or being picked up by developers. or I mean, this is the heart of Hollywood, a great opportunity for somebody to make a killing and to completely knock this thing out. So you come along at a time, both a family friend and a admirer of what the Larsons are doing. You begin to meet the Glover family. All those things come together, probably a longer story than can be told in this podcast. But I want to tip my hat to you that somehow in your negotiation, in your business sense, and in the fact that you have had great success in your other businesses, are now the person who is able to swoop in as a civic treasure, a magical archangel to keep the club alive, to keep the art and the variety alive, and still keep the land where it is and all of that stuff. So I know you probably have big hopes and dreams for it, but what was that responsibility like when you realized you were at the sort of epicenter of the only way for this thing to get saved at that time? It's heavy stuff, Pat. I feel like I owe the Magic Castle everything. Everything I know about entertainment, I learned there. And I have been very fortunate and I've been pretty successful in, in with entertainment and video games and other media. It all comes from there. And so when it came to me and it was, it became very clear, like, oh shit, I, like Christy and I have to be the ones. We have to step up. The universe is picking us. The Larson family is picking us. We were in the right place at the right time with the right relationships, the right amount of credibility, authenticity, and trust, and the actual resources to do it. There were two difficult things. One, deciding to commit ourselves. At first, you know, Christy, she was convinced this was not a good decision because it's not <laughs> by every measure. Like we right, could right. we could take every dollar out of the Magic Castle that it will ever make, and there's no possible way to repay what we had to spend to do this. So it's like, okay, if we do this, we're going to have to accept this as an act of charity. But it also created another opportunity. You know, when I was talking to Erica Larson and Milt Larson about it, Milt said, Randy, if you step up and do this, I'll make sure you also get the intellectual property. He wasn't going to let anyone touch the intellectual. Property. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, that's good. But he made that commitment. It took us a, a year to get the deal done, but he did it. And that wouldn't have happened any other way because to reunite the real estate and the intellectual property into one entity had never happened before. And of course, I already had acquired Genie Magazine, which the Larson family created, you know, that literally the Academy was acknowledged and founded in the pages of Genie Magazine by William Larson Sr. And for the listener again, Genie Magazine is the Conjurer's Magazine that all magicians subscribe to. And Randy's company now, Pitchford Entertainment, Media and Magic, are the publisher of that. So that also kind of puts you at the top of the publishing arm of magic as a field, which is really unique. When print was having difficulties as as the digital era was moving forward, and at, at some point, I don't know, like eight or nine years ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, Irene Larson, when she was still around, asked me if I would take care of it. Because Richard Kaufman, who is a brilliant, like he's written a stack of books about magic taller than yeah, And a great editor and a great writer. Uh, yeah. Just absolutely committed to communicating about our craft to magicians. He, he'd been editor-in-chief for a long time, but he's not really a businessman. And when print was fine and there wasn't anything attacking that, it, it was fine. But, but as print became under siege, Richard was having a hard time figuring out how to keep Genie in the black. And so... Uh, I was asked to kind of step up and, and take care of it. And so I did. And and I think that that did a couple of things. One, it kind of demonstrated to the magic community. And also, you know, I demonstrated to myself like, okay, we can we can do that. 
We can do the right thing because it has to happen, even if there's not a lot of business sense in it. But it also engendered a lot of trust and more, even more relationship building with the Magic community and, and with the Larson family. I'd been financing Milt's hobbies for 25, 30 years, actually. You, yeah, donated money to sort of rehab the close-up room and do, that was another connection to the Magic Castle for you, independent of the magazine. I can understand why you have a patchwork quilt of Magic Castle, like almost like yeah. honor badges along the way. Yeah. <laughs> Having come from your uncle's magic through your own DNA to the Magic Castle and the IP being, you know, something that you were the steward of, of where it goes to the future also must feel like a, a little bit more of a legacy purchase. You're not an amateur magician anymore. That's at wizards saying you have a tuxedo when you don't look, I will do whatever is fair and right to remember Cardini, that exhibit that we have for Cardini in the magic castle. We, we, we put that in what a decade ago. I don't, I don't know how long it's been there long before I acquired the real estate in this ultra property and I'll care for all of magic as I can. But the last thing I'm going to do is anything to make it about myself. I think this is a really important part of it because I felt this way for a long time that I gained more from the castle than I could ever give back. And to take anything else from it is, is not, that's not the right way to be. We need to be giving, we need to be giving to it and it needs us. And it needs everyone in the magic community. So no, it's not going to, it's never going to be about me. I commissioned all the bronze busts of, of the Larson family. We'll elevate them. They're the founders. I wasn't trying to make it sound like a feather in your cap yeah, okay. as much as sort of a very interesting thing that we become what we love. Oh, it's 100% true. I mean, I think we all have that. But look, I do, I feel the weight in a, in a pretty profound way, but I also know that there is nothing special about me, Pat. You probably have some of the same feelings, like in the same way where like, I can tell a story about how the Magic Castle made me and inspired me. I'm no different than how many other magicians that the place has really inspired and created. And, and I've got to remember that. I just happen to be in the seat with the relationships and the resources. I totally understand, but you're there because you're a guy they trusted. All the, and those are all character things, just as you're developing the bus for the family are a hat tip to your character. And part of that, you mentioned Christy fleetingly there, but Christy is your partner and yes. your wife. She's also a great entrepreneur and business person. I know that the restaurant in town there, Nerdvana, is a scratch kitchen. She has a love for that food and development. It's just phenomenal what she's been able to do. I, it just blows my mind. She is good at so many things I will never be good at. And it's just, I'm just so grateful that I get to be in her orbit. <laughs> yeah. Well, just this last week, I saw her surprise you by performing an incredible trick with a Bloody Mary that scaled up and became a full pitcher of Bloody Marys and then filled a series of glasses. And I guess since it's so fresh, I would like to know how that felt for you to be in the audience watching her do your art, which she probably doesn't do. Oh my God. So Pat, here's the thing. Like Christy loves live entertainment. But all the allied arts, you know, variety, I think magic is probably the bottom for her okay. of that, which <laughs> okay. means that when the people that break through, like that's even more incredible. But she's not a performer and she's never performed in her life. And she worked with Handsome Jack, John Lovick, uh, on this routine that Carissa Hendricks as Lucy Darling performs. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant handling of this and presentation of this routine with the perfect character. Of course, John Lovick, I think, worked with, with Chris on that routine as well. And, and so they agreed that 
of all the possible magic, this is the perfect thing for Christy. Cause like she owns a bar. Like I've never tasted alcohol in my life. She owns a bar. She's the one for that kind of presentation. Oh my God, she crushed it, Pat. Yeah, Can you like, it was, it was unbelievable. And I was so like, just joyful that she got to feel what we feel when we're on stage giving that to an audience. And she got to feel that for the first time. Her performance was both nonchalant and she acted surprised to be up there. Yeah, I bought at it. First. I was fooled. I was so fooled. Did you know it was coming? I didn't really know until that day. Okay. I didn't know at all. I was sworn to secrecy, but I really, I really loved seeing your response. Good job, because I was fooled. I had no idea that was coming. And man, it was so awesome to see her feel that. And when she got off stage, I could feel her feeling that that feeling that we all have when we give those experiences to our audiences. And it's the first time she'd ever felt that. And it was really powerful. And it was just, man, that was amazing. What a moment. What a moment. I want to turn the page to when you transitioned from being a magician that was scraping by to being a game developer that was scraping by, but how you made that decision. And then I want to get a little bit into more specifically the video gaming business just for the listener that might have that. But I know that you were a young guy with computers and had already had a great sense of programming and developing, right? From a very young age. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my dad's a a nerd all the way, like literal rocket scientist. He was a Disney Imagineer. Uh, He built my first computer for me when I was really small, literally, literally built it like wrote his own bios, like soldered the components onto a circuit board that he designed, you know, like really built everything. And, um, and so that was always in my life, but it was kind of like a hobby. You know, I never, it never occurred to me that you could make a career out of it. Cause I had this like patchwork home kit computer that my dad made and my programs didn't have any graphics. It was all text-based, you know, like games that I was making, just sharing with friends. And you'd go to like an arcade and you'd see Donkey Kong with like beautiful graphics and music and sound and this cabinet that it's in. And you're like, I don't like, there's gotta be some chocolate factory somewhere with chocolate rivers and Oompa Loompas. And on the other side, this thing pops out. That's a magical process. I'll never have insight into it. So it just was sort of like a hobby thing for me. I was paying my way through college as a magician, doing the best I could. These are the wizard days. Yeah, right? that's right. And I went, I went to wizards to work a shift one night. And right before I left, I uploaded this program that I wrote uh, it wasn't even a game. I, it was a program that I used, a tool that I wrote to help me manage an, uh, a modem game forum on CompuServe. So I can man- manage tournaments and other like events online on CompuServe for modem gaming, which is what we used before we had the internet. You literally put your telephone on a box next to your computer and it would make the phone call another phone. And that's how you connected the computers through sound that was moving through the earpieces. Right. Wah, wah, wah. Ding, ding, doo. Yeah. yeah, that whole thing. And, and, <laughs> and so modem and CompuServe is like primordial internet. It was before we had the internet connecting nodes of, of dial-ins together to kind of create a patchwork of connected computers so we could interact. I'd uploaded this program that I'd written and I, I went to work at Wizards and I, I don't remember it. Typical night, you know, just strolling and doing my thing and making tips and just hustling and grinding it out. It was a really cool environment because there's a lot of other magicians. And, you know, when I say a lot, like more than one uh, in strolling, so we could like, we can interact and, and, and talk shop a little bit. So usually, like, I'd roll in back after that, at, like 3, 3 30 in the morning. And I got home and I'm like, you know what, before I go to bed, I'm just going to go online and see if anybody downloaded my program. And I looked and I noticed that like 2,000 people had downloaded 
my program. And my mind just immediately galaxy brain happened because I was like, I just was on my feet grinding it out. It's fun. I love doing magic, but it takes a lot of energy. You're tired after a, a not full night of strolling. You know, you're exhausted. While I was there doing that, 2,000 people downloaded this program that I wrote in just a couple hours. And I, it was the first time the light bulb went off about how, like, scalability of entertainment. And I, I wasn't smart enough at the time to um, figure out what, like, what David Blaine later figured out, where you could do close-up magic at scale by, like, turning the camera on the audience and, make, like, recording it and putting it on TV. I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. To me, it was like, shit, the best I'll ever do, like I can like go to the close-up room at the Magic Castle, we can fit 20 people at a time. I'm doing like two to four people at a time at these tables. I love this, but I need to find a form of magic that's scalable. And to me, video games were also magic. That's when I kind of like realized, okay, this is what I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to shift gears here. And it's kind of funny because like at the time I was working at Wizards, but I was also basically Fred Wood's unpaid IT guy. I'd set up all his computers. I was helping him with his software. And then he like, so, and I was writing programs to help him with the accounting and the, all the staff hours management. And I remember when I decided that I was going to do it and I ended up getting a job in Texas. I had to tell Fred, like, hey, I, I have to put in like two weeks notice. I'm going to, I'm going to change careers. And he was so crushed. Not that he was losing a great magician, but that he was losing his IT guy. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I can get more magicians. They, they grow on trees. But As we begin to talk further about gaming, I, what I want to do is my editor and co-producer on this show is my 23-year-old son, Tucker Hazel. He's doing a great job, but he's more gaming savvy than I am and has had all these experiences. So I thought it might be fun to bring him into the conversation. He grew up with video games all around him, and he's a guy that plays, tests, and reviews games. So I thought he could help guide maybe some questions that talk about your early gaming development or the future of video games. So first, let me welcome you, Tucker, and make the introduction here to Randy. My first time on the show. I've been editing it for over two years now, but finally he cracked and let me join in on the fun. In a seat that's basically a host seat. Yeah. Congratulations on your promotion. It's been really good listening to all your stories about magic, but my mind goes to video games and technology and the worlds that you've worked on and created over the last 20 years of your life. And one thing that I've really been curious about is creating an entire world like you did with Borderlands, not working on something like Star Wars that other people made just from scratch, building a world full of characters and ideas and that to me is like the most creative process thing someone can do of you have to do everything yourself. And so what's your favorite part of that process? The good news is I don't have to do everything myself. And this is actually my favorite part of the process is, is collaborating with creative people and inventing together. In my company, we sort of created a place where and a process where we together can build and develop and grow these ideas. When we started um, Borderlands, it was on the heels of a different franchise that, that we created. And I was, you know, I was the producer and director and the designer of it. It was a game called Brothers in Arms. And it was about paratroopers in World War II. And we created some new gameplay where you're not just like experiencing this really authentic story about what these men did, but you're actually being tested as, as a soldier from the first person perspective and you're making tactical decisions about fire and maneuver. And it was a pretty awesome game and it turned out to be really, really successful. But I had to admit, as we made that game, our invention was somewhat narrow. Like we didn't invent World War II. 
And we borrowed a lot of what we imagined was in the audience's mind's eye for how that needs to be represented from like, you know, we go back to movies like The Longest Day and all the way up to Saving Private Ryan and think about that kind of desaturated kind of gritty realism that's depicted in film. And we wanted to represent that in the video game. So, so we didn't innovate in the backdrop. I mean, we told a story, but when we think of story as like the high level, like the who, what, why, where, and when, or like just the, the context, like we didn't invent World War II and our stories were all derived from reality and we didn't invent the art direction that was derived from reality and how the mind's eye depicts like how we imagine the representation of war to be because of all the influence in media we've had. I, I think the art director of the television series Combat probably deserve more credit for the art direction in our game than, than any of our artists when it comes to like what the fundamental style was. We did innovate in gameplay, but even still, we were creating a, in, within a genre called the first person action genre. Um, but we did innovate. We created some new interfaces and some, some new experiences with merging a tactical strategy kind of game design with first person action game design and we blended those together and so when when we began borderlands one of the first things is before like what we did it wasn't even borderlands i said to myself okay let's challenge ourselves to innovate in literally every element of story style and design so for story we're gonna have to invent a universe for style we're gonna have to make a completely new look and feel and for design we're gonna have to come up with a new genre that's never been done before and this is really a recipe for disaster. You want to limit your risks if you're creating something new. It's best to take something that already you know works and change like one or two things about it and then present it again with your own flavor. That's the least risky way to innovate. And through the collection of everybody moving little bits, our species goes forward with, with art and entertainment in general. Not us, we're idiots. Let's innovate on literally every aspect of story style design by creating something that didn't exist before. And it is awesome and invigorating and scary and scary, scary, scary. And we should have been dead. So I don't recommend it. I really don't, Tucker. When we were on the brink of launching our game, uh, there was a, a show that had this host, a guy named Jeff Keeley, who hosts the Video Game Awards. And then his counterpart was a guy who was a, an analyst at a like a major finance company. like And this guy, Michael Pachter and Jeff Keeley, and they would debate about the game industry and what was gonna happen with the titles that were coming out. And this was like, a lot of people enjoyed watching the show that were in the game industry because you had this financial analyst mind and this like hardcore gamer mind and they would debate about what would happen. And so of course they're talking about Borderlands and what's gonna happen. And Michael Pachter predicted that it was being sent to die. That if you wanted a, a role-playing game, you'd buy these other games. If you wanted a shooter, you'd buy these other games. And there's just no room, and nobody knew what the universe was. No, there was no room, and we were we were sent to. This is all before the release. It's before the launch. You know, we're watching this. You know, we're like, oh, what have we done? Like, and it was really a difficult kind of project too, because I had burned the boats. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know that saying, but it's like when you're sailing to the new world everything goes wrong, it's very tempting to turn around. So when you land on the new world, you burn the boats and now you have to, you're stuck, you have to settle. You have to figure out how to survive in the new world. We had stopped every other project. We had stopped working on other Brothers in Arms games. Literally, this was all we had. We were all in, this was going to be it. Not only did we burn the boats, but because of a whole lot of like, like inside baseball complexity with our video game publisher, I was personally financing 
the whole like back third of the development, like wow, yeah. across the finish line, I was spending my own money to make sure that this game could ship. And if it didn't work, like that was all gone. We had nothing else going on and then I'd be broke. Yeah. Uh, we talk about all those risks of not only creating, but financing and sharing your art with the world. But one thing that I think is so interesting about your career is that you didn't start with creating your own world. You started with working on the worlds and ports of other people's games. Well, it depends on when you define oh, when I start. Sure, sure. With public seas. <laughs> Certainly with Gearbox, uh, yes. Working on things like Duke Nukem and like Pro Skater and with Gearbox doing the PC port of Halo. These are working in other people's sandboxes. And That's right. I'm curious That's right. for the difference in that creative process, how is that different in your mind or your memory versus um, with Borderlands starting everything from the beginning. It's really fun. If you love something to be able to have the right to explore and play in that space, what a dream. You know, you mentioned things like Half-Life and, and Halo and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and like all amazing things. I had the opportunity to make a video game with the 007 James Bond franchise. I, when I say I replaced like the Gearbox team, but I did this business deal with EA. And when we did that deal at that point, there had never been an original story either in film or any other medium for James Bond. Everything was derived from one of the Ian Fleming books. And we had gotten not only the license to make a James Bond entertainment experience, but to create an, an original one in the, in the style of, and my pitch was like total, like Sean Connery era. You only live twice kind of vibe and that I was this is a dream come true and we are not weeks into the project when our publishing partner tells us hey guess what we just got briefed by MGM here's the next uh, Bond movie here's the date it's going to come out it's got Pierce Brosnan you're going to have to figure out how to put Pierce Brosnan in your video game and you're going to have to go day and date with the movie we're going to maximize this marketing opportunity by launching it alongside the movie and I was like oh so my entire development plan got flushed down the toilet and I didn't have any leverage I'm just a chump work for hire gun that is going to have to do what he's told. I was already committed to a contract that I didn't read thoroughly enough. So I was kind of stuck on that. And on one level, it's like the most brilliant gift in the world to have a chance to work on someone else's stuff. But on the other world, you're working on someone else's stuff and they have to be happy and they might change their minds along the way. And you're just going to have to deal with that. I've sat in both sides of that. There's a movie based on Borderlands that's going to come out next year. It's awesome. It's got Kate Blanchett and Kevin Hart and Jamie Lee Curtis and Jack Black and it's and, and Gina Gershon is Mad Moxie and she's amazing and, and Lionsgate is the studio and, and Arad Productions is the production company. Avi Arad was the founder and CEO of Marvel Studios. It's this is just like a big big deal. But now I'm on the other side where these people are all committing a part of their lives and a huge amount of money to make. Uh, this piece of entertainment based on my property. And I decided, okay, I've got to just be the best partner ever. I'm not going to be dictatorial. I'm sure. not going to like, they know how to make movies. You've learned the mistakes from being the other guy back from in your suffering. Past. Yeah. And oh, believe <laughs> right. me, I've suffered and nothing is worse than making a video game based on a Hollywood IP. People tend to think because they find success in one place that they know that they're always right in all the other places. And Oh my God, some of the nightmares I dealt with with like the Aliens project, project. No one will ever know, and I'll never tell. But but, yeah. but you are executive producer of the Borderlands movie. Yes. And you shot that overseas where you Yeah, were no, I lived in Budapest for most of the pandemic, working two days a day. I'd get up early in the morning, go to the set, 
work a full day on the movie. And then I'd go back to my apartment because of the time differences. People were waking up here at Gearbox. And so then I'd work a full day at Gearbox remotely. And uh, we learned how to work remote because of the pandemic. I was in there every step of the way, cradle to grave, but I wasn't I wasn't the guy trying to say like, you're doing it wrong. You know, I wasn't using my authority. I was just like, hey, I'm a guy on the line like everybody else. Put me to work. If you want my thoughts on something, I'll give them to you. If you want me to make a thing, shit, I shot drone footage. I actually shot because I brought my drones to Budapest. There was no plan to use a drone. And then we were doing this vehicle sequence. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go out there and shoot some stuff. And then I gave it to the guys. I'm like, this is freaking great. There's some drone shots that I shot. It must be exciting to be involved in every part of the creative process in that way to be able to expand what you are able to contribute to that kind of project. I learned a lot. And that's really what I approached it as. I'm just going to soak everything in. I'm going to do as much as I can, like literally roll up my sleeves and work on things. And as many of the jobs as they'd let me sidle up to, I built some things. I messed around with the the prop guys and and helped out there and, and set design and as many things as they just were cool with me. And I, and I was, I was like, look, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm here to help. Like you pull anything you want out of me. It's yours and use me as labor and I'll do it. And it was a really, really fun and rewarding experience. I think, and I think the movie's pretty good. You crossed that point not too long ago. Well, maybe months ago, I saw a cut where I'm like, I, I don't think I have to worry about being embarrassed anymore. This is like, it's a good movie. I'm having fun here. This is going to be great. Tucker, you watch a lot of movies. Is this one on your radar for an advanced date? Or? Well, absolutely. I mean, from what I can recall, it's releasing in uh, early August of yeah, next August year, 8th, which, yeah. which is my birthday. August 7th is my what? birthday. And so uh, every year I get to get some early August movie that lines up. In the past, it's been some not so great movies, uh, The Meg, Suicide Squad. But Hit me up as we approach and I'll make sure you get an invite to the premiere we're going to do here in Dallas so you can come up and, and see the movie with us. I got that you. would be really, really fantastic. But you got to hit me up because I'll forget of course, of course it seems like you're always willing to reinvent yourself and apply your creative process to other things and what is your favorite part about trying something new it seems like you're you go from magic to games and now you're working in film and that must be really exciting but there's got to be a through line in there and what is that look at the end of the day it's about what we get out of it when we give something to an audience maybe it's the empathetic nature of our species but i think for me i feel more joy when I'm in a room with people that are feeling joy than if I'm being stimulated myself. When I see something cool, my first instinct is I want to show somebody else so I can feel them feeling it. And I think a lot of magicians have this. I think a lot of entertainers have this. That's the drug we're after. I've kind of come up with a way to sort of rationalize that. I think that all human motivation and literally our will to live is derived from the hope that we can experience joy and happiness. Because we know what happens when people lose hope that they will ever in the future have joy and happiness. And it's not great. They usually go away. But when we have any hope for joy and happiness, we care and we want to fight for it. That that is the fundamental motivator means that the experience of joy and happiness is the most valuable thing we have. And, and, you know, I was going back to what we were talking about earlier. I was just a magician to pay my way through school. But then I had to figure out how I'm going to live my life and what my career is going to be. And we have so many options. You know, and there's so many things that we're told are the noblest thing. Like maybe I should be going to medicine and you know try to become a doctor or a nurse or a, someone making pharmaceuticals or something to help us live longer and healthier lives. Or maybe I should be a police officer, a fireman or a soldier or someone that's going to help us live a safer life or a more secure life. 
or maybe a civil engineer, you know, to build the roads and the buildings and, the, and make it a more convenient and comfortable life. And all those things are great and valuable and there's nobility in all of that, of course. But if what makes life worth living is the fact that we can experience joy and happiness and have hope to experience joy and happiness, then perhaps the most noble thing in the world is to create joy and happiness for other people. Yeah. And we are such a clever species. We figured out how to commoditize that with entertainment. So people like Pat and me can make a living creating joy and happiness for others. And it's just, I can't believe we get to live in this world to do this. Yeah. I want to wrap things by thanking you for investing the time. I know that you're a busy guy and this is a gift to us and to our listener to be able to get to know you a little bit better. If they want to know more about you, gearbox.com and magiccastle.com are both great places to go. So my great thanks to storyteller, joy maker, hope fulfiller, and drone operator, Randy Bitchford, this afternoon. Thank you so much, pal. Oh, thank you, Pat. Cheers, you guys. And Tucker, thank you for joining us, pal. Cheers, buddy. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing and crafty co-producing by Tucker Hazel. The original music theme was created and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Diane Johansson, Tony Deo, and Tanner Dykstra. Please feel free to dash off a review on social media to help grow this creative community. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, dot fun, as in dot was so fun. Bye for now. La, 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 la. Staring at an empty page, stepping 